Hello and welcome to Dread Radio. My name is Jesse Gubbin and I'll be your host. This podcast is aimed to advance education through the study of the practice of law and legal rights. Welcome to another episode. This time, we are discussing videotaping police misconduct. I want to say as we start out, considering this is a bit less of an inquiry and a bit more of some information, please do not take this podcast as legal advice. It's not legal advice. It's just a discussion of the subject. And that's why you're going to hear a comparative analysis between the United States and Canada. You should consult a lawyer specifically if you have a specific circumstance that you need addressed. That being said, we have a very interesting group of individuals speaking on this subject, and I think you'll appreciate what they have to say. As we are starting the 2020s, many people are reflecting on what has happened over the last decade. Something that's clear is that videotaping the police has led to much greater public scrutiny about injustices and brutality across the United States and in Canada. So it's important to think about when and how people can videotape the police to ensure greater accountability. There's also going to be a discussion about police videotaping themselves, onboard cameras, body cameras, when Do those measures become important, necessary, and useful, if at all? And something that we cannot ignore as black and brown bodies and others are killed is the human cost, the cost of families losing loved ones. And panelist Desmond Cole will raise some questions with respect to the human costs of our collective failure to address police misconduct more generally. He's one of the panelists. Also, you'll hear from four lawyers, one being the panelist, Sharif Foda, a criminal defense lawyer, and Patrick Mazurek, who's a civil litigation lawyer who will be talking about how to raise these issues in a civil domain. Leora Shemesh, she is a criminal lawyer in Toronto, and Mickey Osterreicher, a media lawyer and general counsel to the National Press Photographers Association. Here's a discussion that may give you some insight on the subject. I'll check in with you later. Uh, The first topic I want to cover is the constitutional right to film the police. Uh, We're fortunate here to have uh, both the American and Canadian perspectives, so I will just turn to, I'll turn to Mickey first, actually. Can you you tell us what the sort of American constitutional context around videotaping the police is, when it developed, and and how that's... uh, played out generally in the courts of America? Sure. Uh, well, obviously, uh, it's uh, that right derives under our First Amendment, which has lots of clauses in it, but the ones that we'll deal with here mostly are the free speech and free press clause. I know a lot of times people always look quizzically like, yeah, speech, but what does that have to do with taking photographs or of recording the police? And basically, through case law, speech is the way you do that is you express yourself. And photographs and videotape have been a form of expression, and so that's what's protected under the free speech clause. Um, in terms of free press, it's 
pretty self-evident uh, when journalists are out there photographing and recording. The problem these days really arises in the fact that trying to discern who is or isn't a journalist these days uh, is something that, that, that people find a lot of problems with. The other amendments that come into play are the Fourth Amendment against unreasonable search and seizure. So it's not only the seizure of your property, but when you're arrested, that's a seizure of a person. And so um, that comes into play when people are out there photographing and recording, and then they're arrested for doing that. And then the 14th Amendment in terms of uh, due process um, is, is another one. So those three really work together, and um, for the most part, if you're out, the general rule is if you are in public where you have a legal right to be present or you're on private property with the permission of the property holder, whether you have a camera in your hand or you don't have a camera in your hand should make no difference. If you are there and have a legal right to be there and observe what the police are doing, you also have the ability to photograph and record them as long as you don't materially interfere with them. So. Can an officer uh, direct you to do something or not do something? Absolutely. So the First Amendment is not absolute. It's, in the United States, what's known as subject to reasonable time, place, and manner restrictions. So the example would be if an officer says, turn off that damn camera and go away, not good. But if the officer says, ma'am, sir, I need you to step out of the street and stand on the sidewalk. I don't want you to get hit by a car. That would be a reasonable time, place, and manner restriction. Those restrictions need to both be content and viewpoint neutral. So they can't say, oh, I agree with what that video might be used for, so we'll let that person record versus, nah, they're going to use it for some other purpose, so I can't let them. It has to be neutral in, in that sense. The restriction has to be narrowly tailored to serve a significant governmental interest. So public safety, I don't want you to get hit by a car, that's a significant governmental interest. And it has to leave open reasonable alternative avenues of expression. So go away and disappear off the face of the earth is not a reasonable time, place, and manner restriction, whereas stand over there is. Um, if you get too close, officers worry about weapon retention. If you're close enough to reach an officer's weapon, he or she can direct you to stand back from that. Again, a reasonable time, place, and that restriction. You turn off the damn camera, or you're under arrest for recording. Not so reasonable. It's almost the exact same in Canada, I guess. I suppose it's almost the exact same, but I'm, I'm curious. In the United States, are officers abiding by that, or are they telling people to turn off their cameras? The lawyerly, it depends. We find that most, so, so one of the things, when I first started doing training with journalists and citizens, I realized early on, telling them about what their rights are is usually, officer, I know my rights. That's the preceding <laughs> sentence before turn around, put your hands behind your back, you're under arrest. So, you know, didn't, didn't think that that was a good thing. So because I've been involved in law enforcement, and if any of you have been to the Buffalo Bills games, you'll see us out there working uh, to try and keep public order, and I'm amazed how many times I see Canadians come down to, to watch the games. But, but at any rate, I, I started doing training around the country with police officers because what happens is in the United States, and I'm sure here, officers end up getting sued, and departments end up getting sued when they violate these constitutional rights. You know, part of that training, 
I found really is the younger officers that have grown up with cameras, that video games, all of that stuff, they're like, knock yourself out. Record, do whatever, just stay over there and stay out of my way. Or they, they just basically ignore people with cameras because it cuts both ways. For officers that are acting professionally and courteously, it's like, I'd love as many videotapes as possible. Get them all out. So when I get sued for using excessive force, it's like, let's go to the videotape and see that I did perform well. It's the older officers that, as Ruth Bader Ginsburg has used the expression, contempt of cop. There are many officers that think that by having that camera, you are defying their authority. And, and they don't like it. But I, I think, really for me, is I would see a complete sea change in attitude if when officers and departments are sued, that money uh, came right out of their pay or out of the department's budget Unfortunately, for the most part, when these cases are settled, the taxpayers are the ones that end up footing the bill for their misbehavior. So I, I think more departments are recognizing it. I think the, the real thing at the beginning is, and the question that I ask when I go there is, does a department have a policy? Many departments have no policy about citizens and journalists recording them. Uh, if they do have a policy, then the next thing is they really need to have adequate training. Otherwise, it's just a piece of paper that go, yeah, we have a policy, and nobody reads it, nobody trains to it. And if you don't have a policy and you don't have training, you can't have discipline. So in the departments that do, it, things, things are much better. But I'll give you a perfect example. New York City, NYPD, they have an amazing policy. They have a terrible record for officers interfering and or arresting citizens and journalists recording them. And they don't care because they just pay out hundreds of thousands of dollars to settle these cases and it only costs the taxpayers the money and it doesn't really end up affecting the officers. We've had, we had one case that I was involved in where a journalist for the New York Times was arrested. He was charged with the usual what I call catch and release charges of disorderly conduct and uh, obstruction of governmental administration. Charges were dismissed. The district attorney was so incensed that this happened, it was actually during the stop and frisk program in the Bronx that he and a reporter were covering, that he ended up bringing charges against the police officer for filing a false instrument when he signed the misdemeanor complaint that was for the underlying charges. The officer actually could have taken a plea, done things, he went to trial and was convicted of doing that, but I mean the punishment was like community service, so. Yeah, I don't think there's any policy here. I think uh, there's certainly more awareness and certainly more education now that people are grabbing their cell phones and filming. Certainly in Canada there is the obstruction of justice charges, so if you are obstructing a police officer from effecting an arrest or from performing their duties, then yes, they have a right to tell you to stop recording. They don't have a right to seize your cell phone. I find some of the cases now officers are attempting to seize cell phones, but I think there has been no policy in place from jurisdiction to jurisdiction which you know signals to police that they are required or, or permitted to have citizens filming on the street. They're learning. They're slow to learn, but they are learning. There's certainly more media attention now about it, and it's certainly out there. And so officers, we're, we're being told, are being educated about it. But it's, it's a slow process. It certainly is. And in Canada, 
uh, our equivalent of the First Amendment, that is Section 2B of the Charter, uh, which is the right to guarantees freedom of expression and freedom of the press. Is that sort of interpreted, or has that been applied the same way that the First it Amendment has. has? Yeah, it was very, very incredibly similar, if not uh, at even. And uh, Patrick, is there uh, any interplay as a civil litigator between sort of with the American First Amendment or the, or the Canadian's right to freedom of expression under Section 2B of the Charter and civil lawsuits, the sort of the, the kind of stuff that uh, Mickey was talking about in terms of lawsuits while the, tax, the taxpayer is the one that puts the bill, but uh, constitutionally speaking, do we see civil litigation around that issue in Canada? Well, some. I've been involved in some. I was thinking as I was hearing that, Leora, like, we like to think here in Canada more advanced but in a lot of ways as I'm sure you experience more than me we're not and I was thinking of a case I did after the G20 business here where I represented a guy who had exactly that happen he was just standing there with a video camera taking pictures of what was going on and the police gave him the whole routine they came over you got to stop and he didn't they took the thing away threw it on the ground confiscated it actually for quite a while we got it back a few days later, but uh, and and they roughed them up a little bit too. So we sued them, and uh, you know that kind of thing happens. But uh, picking up on Mickey's point, same here in Canada. I don't know, probably some of you followed it. There were prosecutions sort of under the Police Act after G20, and some people, including a couple of guys involved in this incident, were called on the carpet at that. But if you followed it, like the penalties were laughable, like like really laughable, like. They got docked one day's pay or something. You know, like, it's virtually nothing. And in civil lawsuits, it's not common. It's starting to happen more. And to date, you don't get a lot of money unless you're physically hurt. I mean, if they, yeah, I did one where they broke a guy's arm, and you, you know, you get some money for that. But, but for this kind of inchoate intrusion on your freedoms, in theory, you can get damages, including charter damages, but uh, in my experience, it hasn't been much of anything so far. And in, in your case, was the was the gentleman charged with, I think what you said is the, the what was it, the, the stop and release charges? Here's your catch and release. Because they're just basically trying to stop you from what uh, you're doing. They don't really care if the charges stick. It's just like, get that camera out of my face. Okay, you're under arrest, and then it's sit there and look through the penal code. All right, when are we going to charge him? I, th uh, I think we already agree that's what we call when you see a synopsis and the charges are assault peace officer and resist arrest. Resist arrest. There, it's often those kinds of scenarios. So, well, that's what happened with this guy. Of course, at the G20, they were doing that with anybody walking down the street. They were all detaining him for a while. So that's why this guy got detained for about 12 hours or something. Then they. They let them out. Oh, so wonderful. I, I'm, so. I'm curious. Um, so in the United States, it's 42 United States Code Section 1983, and for short, we call them 1983 actions. And it basically says, if you've been deprived of your civil rights under color of law, which is a nice euphemism by the government, usually a police officer, then you can bring a federal civil rights lawsuit. And that's what we've seen happen in, in, in all of these cases. What happens then in terms of this back and forth is that an officer will assert what's called qualified immunity. In other words, officers get sued all the time. So they give them this qualified immunity. And the only way to defeat that in the US is a two-pronged approach. 
first of all, you have to show that there was a constitutional right to begin with that was violated. The second part of that is that that right has to have been clearly established, again, another legal term that they use, clearly established so that any reasonable police officer would have known at the time of the arrest that he or she was violating that constitutional right. And so what's interesting is the Supreme Court has never, the US Supreme Court has never ruled on the issue of the right to photograph and record. But we have all of our courts of appeal that have. And so we have, believe it or not, all the odd ones. The first, the third, the fifth, the seventh, the ninth, and the eleventh. All of those odd circuits have now, in one form or another since the 1990s, up through 2017 when the third and the Fifth Circuit agreed to that and said that right now is clearly established going forward so that whether you've had training, you haven't had training, any reasonable police officer in those jurisdictions will know it pretty much then prevents that qualified immunity from, from, taking, from taking place. So that's kind of the back and the forth and the shifting of, 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 of how you deal with those. And under the Section 1983 actions, it's not only if somebody's been injured or suffered an injury or been put in jail, but it's also if you prevail in that action, they, the other side has to pay for attorney's fees. So many times those attorney's fees will be fairly significant. They'll, they're usually in the $150,000 to $250,000 range. The one that's at the extreme end is from the Seventh Circuit, um, was, was a case uh, in uh, Illinois, and the state's attorney appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. They, they filed a petition for certiorari to hear the case. The court put, turned it down, but all those briefings, the citizens ended up paying $675,000 to settle that case because of all the additional briefing that went on. That'd be nice if they did that here. Yeah. <laughs> We were just talking about sort of the Canadian American constitutional right to uh, to film uh, the police, and have we seen, Lior? Do you know if we've seen in Canada? Uh, I know there was one case recently from last year, a Toronto police officer. I don't know if any of you guys saw this. He was being filmed by a civilian. There's actually a couple of cases where police officers. It was officers an arrest. It was an arrest, right? Yes, yeah. during arrests, and they're being filmed by civilians, mm -hmm. uh, and then they're interfered with uh, by the police. Do you know anything about those cases, Leora? Yeah, so I, like I said, I think our, our situation is very similar to the U.S. in some respects, but I think the case you're referring to is the police were affecting an arrest. A, a young gentleman uh, began to film that arrest, and he turned his phone on. He, he at first decided not to turn the phone on. He thought perhaps let them do their job, I'll turn my phone on, um, you know, if I really need to. But he began to see that the uh, detainee was being roughed up, and he decided at that point that he was going to begin filming. And so he began, he began to film it. And as my recollection, if it serves me right, is, is that the officer, uh, I think, got very close to him and said, turn off your phone, or demanded that he turn off his phone. I think he said something to the effect of, the detainee may spit on you and you may get AIDS, or something of, of, that, of that sort. I, I think I have that right. People are nodding their head yes in confirmation. I think subsequent to that interaction, though, the chief came out, police came out and said he was wrong. He was wrong. 
That's why I say there needs to be more awareness and more education and it's slow to come. But it, it's obvious that members of the public are permitted to obviously film. So whether that was simply an excuse that day because police just simply didn't want it to be captured on video, to me was rather obvious. This wasn't a police officer who was unaware or ill-informed or uneducated. It was an officer who used his power and abused it that day and decided to ensure that this individual wasn't going to film what he was doing. As much as I applaud the chief for coming out and saying we want to educate and inform, I don't think this officer, as I say, was someone who was lacking in education. So in, in terms of, and I'll move on right now to how videotaping the police and the legal disputes that flow from <clears throat> videotaping the police uh, can uh, impact on police accountability and act as deterrence on police misconduct. Patrick and, and Mick, you guys were talking about sort of damages, damage awards that are given for these sort of civil rights violations. Now, I'm interested in knowing, uh, are the awards higher in America because punitive damages or what we call treble damages are awarded or, or no? No. Uh, you guys just give big awards. No, it's, it's the attorney's fees. <laughs> no, it's the attorney's fees that drive the award. So, you know, in a case that, for example, uh, was settled for $200,000, the individual who was arrested might have got somewhere between twenty-five and forty-five thousand dollars, and the rest of that were attorney's fees that went for actually prosecuting the the civil case. And I'll, I'll ask a, a couple of questions that flow from that. One: How do these lawsuits get funded? If you're Joe Schmo from the street and you're worried about you've had your civil rights violated, you're trying to videotape the police, your phone is seized, you're you know, you're entitled to damages, but you're worried about a big costs award bankrupting you. Who does, are there organizations that will fund these lawsuits, and how, how does that work? So, as general counsel for the National Press Photographers Association, when our members, something happens to one of them, they will call me. I represent the association. Many times I'll help draft um, amicus briefs, friends of the court briefs, things like that, but um, only in a few cases have I actually either had to go into court to defend our, our member in terms of the criminal charge, but in terms of bringing the federal civil rights lawsuit, there are a number of media lawyers uh, around the country that we work with, and we work with the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press and the Committee to Protect Journals, and there are a number of organizations um, so that if you know, they, just like any other case, will look at that as a lawyer and believe, if they have merit, they will, you know, take the case pretty much pro bono and know that if they win, that they're going to get their, their fees reimbursed. But if they don't, then, and, and they, just like in a personal injury case, you take it, you think you have a good case, because it is a personal injury case, and if you get nothing, you get nothing, and those are the chances you take. So it's just this network. As a matter of fact, there was one case in New York where a journalist was arrested by NYPD, uh, charged with obstruction of governmental administration. I pretty much wrote a letter to the district attorney laying out these things. District attorney decided not to prosecute. They dropped the charges right away. He got an attorney, directed the attorney, brought the federal civil rights lawsuit, actually survived the motion to dismiss. We got a really good ruling out of that in the Southern District of New York. Uh, but then 
there was arguable probable cause to arrest him for something, is what the court found. In some, so it's not even what they charged him with, but the police could have found something that was arguable and probable cause. So therefore, he lost on summary judgment. It went up to the Second Circuit, which is the Court of Appeals for New York and the New England states. And what's interesting now is that they affirmed that decision but one of the things that we're faced with now, and it's very interesting because it's like breaking news here. So there was a case called Lozman versus the city of Riviera Beach, where Mr. Lozman was arrested at a city council meeting in Florida. And he was just trying to talk. And there's video of him, and they just basically say, sit down, you're out of order, and he refused to do it. And they arrested him. The case went all the way to the Supreme Court. It was the second time he went there. First time he was there was because his houseboat, he claimed, was in a boat, and it was really interesting, it became maritime law. But they didn't like him. They didn't like him because he was the gadfly. He was the guy at the public meeting that was always criticizing them and saying that they were corrupt and all of those things. This case went all the way to the Supreme Court, and the question was, does probable cause trump a 1983 action, a federal civil rights lawsuit? And the court narrowly decided that case and said, that the council had policy animus, was the word that they used. They just didn't like him. And therefore, um, they reversed and remanded and said, no, in this case, no, no, no. There might have been probable cause to arrest him, but in this case, sorry, uh, city, you lose. Literally, the ink was dry. This was last June when the Supreme Court decided that one of the last cases. And before the ink was dry on that, they took another case called Nieves v. Bartlett, which is a real cop case, which is a guy up in Alaska who pretty much was mouthing off to a cop and then telling some uh, juvenile where there was drinking, you don't have to talk to the cop, and they ended up arresting him. And again, the whole thing, probable cause. So it's now before the Supreme Court. They basically have Tuesday, and four other Mondays in June, and one of those days, that decision will come down. So uh, pay, pay attention to it because, of course, the arguments on both sides, and we filed briefs in those cases, if indeed probable cause and arguable probable cause, and it's not like at the time they charge you, but it's literally, you know, three months later, yeah, we could have charged them with this obscure law. Good enough, no problem. <laughs> Um, that's where we're saying that will basically vitiate 1983 actions. The other side says if probable cause doesn't help us, the police are going to get sued like even more than they get sued now. So it'll be interesting to see, and scary, you know, because I have no idea which way they're going to go on this as to what, what they decide, but that's pretty much what we're facing. Um, you were asking about costs and yeah, how it works. Yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to actually ask you, Patrick. So uh, I know that we have sort of in Ontario, we have we have a similar cost regime with, with loser pays. But do you find which is different in the U.S. I think costs? <coughs> I'm no expert on the U.S. Yeah, only American lawyers tell me it's much different down here. Can, can I ask? Do do you find that costs are a deterrent for? Um, civilians to bring lawsuits against the police, their sort of fear of being uh, on the hook for a cost award. And uh, do you find that 
it's a deterrent for the police. Uh, their fear of losing lawsuits to you know, train their members better, to ensure that they know what people's constitutional rights are, uh, or do you think that it's more sort of a public outcry like when we see cases like that one last year where the police officer told the guy don't record and he gets bit on, et cetera, that that is more of a deterrent on the police? Okay, well, I'll start at the end. You asked about is it a deterrent on the police? Yes. Cost. Absolutely not. Okay. <laughs> they throw so much cost at fighting some of those things out of all proportion. Uh, I mean, I'll give you an example. Please. I sued the police for roughing up a young woman who was riding her bicycle. She wasn't hurt very badly, but she was hurt a little bit. But it was uh, improper, and we sued him. And to keep, because of cost considerations, and because she wasn't hurt too badly, we tried something interesting. We sued him in small claims court, where you get a maximum of probably 25,000. But that's not bad. In her case was probably not worth more than that. It was remarkable the amount of police time and money, public money, that went into defending these police officers, and there's four of them. And um, that it, it's, if you've been to small claims court, I don't recommend it, but uh, <laughs> things generally are designed to be quicker and cheaper and what have you. And on the plaintiff side, I can tell you, if you win, there's a cap of 3,500 bucks, which was a bit of an issue. For cost? Yeah. Okay. And uh, that's the most they can give you. Mm -hmm. So this thing went five days oh. in small claims court, <laughs> where we were only asking for minimal damages under 25,000 and on and on it went we won remarkably it was her word against them but anyway we won and we got awarded 3,500 costs which you know, was great five days and all that other stuff <laughs> and we were only started because then they appealed it to divisional court and we had to do factums and all that stuff there and now divisional court in what I consider a crappy room uh, have kicked it back to the small claims court on some technical thing. So it's just an ongoing morass of costs. And, uh, you know, when you're trying to do something kind of pro bono in this instance, uh, you know, but it, it's, I don't want to tell war stories, but hopefully that underscores the point. You should expect police to marshal as many resources as they can. And they really just try to bludgeon you, basically, like that yeah. case illustrates. Because any common sense defendant would to pay their lawyers all this money to fight about a small little thing, where, where it was at the very least arguable. I mean, it's the kind of case, I, you heard in the introduction, I do a lot of insurance law. And, you know, an insurance company would have settled this case, like 99.9% of the time. They wouldn't want to pay lawyers all this money to fight, but police, no. Is it the city of Toronto's legal staff that defend officers in these circumstances? Mm -hmm. Yes and no. In that case, it was. It was a staff lawyer. Um, the sometimes they hire outside counsel. Yeah. And, it's a staff uh, lawyer with the police, not with the city. It's their counsel. The question is, is it the city of Toronto? Yeah, is it the city of Toronto lawyer? Like, who's making the call? Yeah, the citizens? lawyer worked directly. Like, yeah. was a staff lawyer, meaning he was on salary with the city of Toronto legal department. But they have a few people there that kind of specialize in these things. It wasn't the first time. The case against because when you see the police in Toronto, you're, are you seeing the municipality? The, yeah, usually you it's the 
Police Services Commission. You, you can actually sue the actual police division. I only know because I'm suing Peel Police. Um, yeah. So you can sue Peel Police directly, and they do have outside counsel. They get a top law firm to, to represent them, so they don't always keep it in-house. Right. It depends, I think, what type of case yeah. it is and how much money they want to invest in defending for that police division. And you can sue whoever you want, so you can sue the individual officers. Absolutely. For sure. Absolutely. Because you want their name trying to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the, the force is going to hire a lawyer for that individual officer. Yeah. They, unless the officer, I guess in theory, if they were wildly outside the boundaries of their job, let's say some off-duty stuff and whatever, then they could, in theory, say, no, you're on your own, buddy. But uh, normally, they, yeah. they, they're going to pay the permit. Defense now. So I got waylaid on the answer about the police side of it. On the plaintiff's side, just very quickly, you know, so you've got two kind of costs to worry about your own, paying your own lawyer. That's not usually an issue around here because you can usually find somebody who's willing to do it on a you know contingency basis or pro bono in effect, like that story I was giving you. So that's not usually the bar to doing it, but Picking up on your question, it's a good one. Look, you got to think about, and it's part of your job when you're the plaintiff lawyer. It's just great to say, "Oh, we're going to, we're going to fight them," and blah blah blah. But you got to warn them. <laughs> like if this goes against you, in theory, they they can come after you for costs. And have you had clients say, "You know what? Then I don't want to bring this because I'm worried of of a cost award against me." Yeah. Like it, a lot depends. Do they have resources? A lot of the clients don't, and so that can be a quick discussion because they say, "Hey, bring it on." I can't pay it anyway. And, uh, <laughs> so, you know, somebody who owns some property or something, they've got to be careful because it, it can be a risk. And I think in your question you asked, oh, was there some place you can go to get help with that? The only quick things I'll say is um, channeling what I have to say to clients about this. It costs are discretionary here, right? The, like, so even if one side wins, it doesn't automatically mean you're getting cost compensation from the quote loser. And one of the considerations that the courts do seem to pay a fair bit of attention, because it's discretionary, you can't predict for sure what's gonna happen. But one is, is it a question of public importance? And I try to argue that in these kind of cases, if you're, if you're unsuccessful, you say, hey, this was at least something that deserved the light of day type of thing, and therefore don't penalize the person for bringing You know, you're already found against them, and they've got their own cost to worry about, or maybe not, the lawyer does, but the uh, but don't penalize them with a big cost award, because it's you know, it's a chill factor, right? Because people, as soon as there's a big cost award, everybody else is gonna slow down, pretty like they do in libel cases. So, so anyway, that's, that's a quick thumbnail sketch, but you can be on the hook. The only public thing I'm aware of in terms of getting help with those costs is in class actions. If any of you have ever done any of that, there is a fund for class actions. Now, most of these police things would not be class actions or one-offs unless, I think somebody tried to do a case in North Yeah, so that might, you know, once in a while you might get one that's a uh, that's, uh, class action, but usually with police matters it's not. So, so you can't take advantage of that. But it's an interesting idea. I just thought of it as you were asking, because there's nothing stopping members of the public to band together and set up funds to help people do this, right? The funding for some of the class actions in Ontario is funded by the Law Foundation of Ontario. Right. They, they collect money from lawyers' trust accounts, and they will fund public interest lawsuits that we, uh, that we see often. But, but they will help 
your cost award against the other side. Yes, and they're on the yeah. they're on the hook sometimes for cost award when 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 uh, when they lose, but then they get an intervener status. I saw a gentleman in the back. Do you have a question, sir? Two comments. So first, I have to make a disclosure that uh, until recently, I was the independent police review director from Taylor to deal with police complaints. And and so two comments uh, with the the costing. Very few people, in my opinion, and to my knowledge, bring civil suits, and a few have been trying it out in small claims court. Unlike the United States, it's not a big area here. And part of that reason, I think, is because we have a public complaint system, so people end up in the case you refer to, the con case, uh, that's where it came to, to my organization, and we found against the police. But that matter was settled. That's the OIPRD? That's right. So that, but that matter was settled, and I think part of the problem that we don't see a lot of lawsuits uh, coming out of these type matters is cost is prohibitive uh, to average uh, uh, Jane or Joe on the street. They just can't afford it. And, uh, and two, the courts had to tune to it, in my opinion. Even small claims court, they mixed decisions that's come out of G20 matters that I investigated and, and other matters where people have gone to small claims court. And lastly, in regards to the camera thing, what, what the police, what I've seen the police use now is if a citizen is videotaping them, uh, they'll say, I need a camera because it has evidence. Yeah. And, and I think that's illegal. I've found again some people are doing that. I say, you have no rights. Uh, you go find your own evidence. But uh, <laughs> so I just thought I'd mention that, and I think that's one of the reasons why in this book it's called uh, it went five days because nobody knows what. I mean, I did have an officer apply for a warrant to get the evidence on the phone. So I have had that happen where they have gone through the proper legal channels to get the evidence off the phone. So it's possible, but I agree with you. They can't just simply, you know, confiscate the phone and declare that it has evidentiary value. I agree. Well. Yes, they can't. Right, but they do. But they do. <laughs> In my own experience of building police interactions, I've repeatedly had police officers, security officials, just try to snatch my device out of my hand. It happens all the time. I'm really interested in the idea of deterrence, though, and I wanted to go back to that. Please. Because, in my opinion, while it would be great to have an unlimited fund for civilians who just can't do this, they can't take the pain of the length of time, the cost, it would be wonderful to have a fund to support those kinds of individuals. And I think it's particularly important to um, support black and indigenous people who are in that scenario because we are the ones who are most likely to be targeted by this behavior. And I, I want to pivot from this point in a second, but I'll just add to that that, um, Lear, when you brought up the incident that it was like kind of around Church Street and the man who was targeted for being filmed, let's remember what he was filming. He was filming a black man who was on the ground, his hands cuffed behind his back, who was being kicked, who was being tased by police, and that man disappeared from the narrative because it became about the rights of the person filming him. Absolutely. But that black man was being brutalized on the ground and that was the reason why the man started filming. And that's kind of where I want to go with this in terms of deterrence. I personally don't think you can, through the legal process, deter the police from protecting their own interests. 
it's too long, it's too expensive, there are too few good outcomes for the public. I personally, and, and my interest in the conversation is that I really think that, that work of deterrent has to mostly happen outside of the courtroom. It's simply not in the police's interest to ever stop trying to discredit people, catch them doing what they do. I guess the way I think about it is, if you're going to try and attack that problem, I think you have to look a little bit deeper. The reason that I don't attack people in the street, try to take their physical, their possessions from them, mostly is because I'm actually worried that harm will come to me. As much as I might want to smack somebody sometimes, my main concern as a person is that I am going to put myself in jeopardy and harm the minute that I decide to act aggressively towards somebody else. The police don't have that problem because they have a gun on their head. I think we actually need to look very, very carefully at the power imbalance that creates all of these scenarios. And if we ultimately want to support people who would be victims of police violence, we have to level that power imbalance significantly in favor of civilians. If I had a gun, I would absolutely go around smacking everybody who annoyed me. Because what are they going to do about it? I think that's the police's mentality in a nutshell. What are you going to do about it? And we'll spend a billion dollars defending ourselves if you try to bring it against us. It is the overwhelming power imbalance that facilitates all of these things. And that's why I think we really actually need to talk about things like disarming beat cops. Because you don't need to walk around the street with a handgun telling people that they crossed the wrong side of the street. I think we need to talk about fixing the imbalance rather than, the pro I think the problem that I have in the law is that everything becomes about the individual case. People have to do work understanding an individual instance, trying to sort out what happened in that individual instance. Sometimes the outcome for the person is good, sometimes it isn't. But in general, I just don't think there's enough pressure that the public can bring to bear. I think we've gone really wild with the idea in general, we as a society in general, not just lawyers. Everybody has gone wild with this idea that you can successfully catch the police in the act. So first of all, it's extremely risky for any civilian to try and hold the police accountable just by, say, using their own cell phone. We're asking a lot of people to even suggest that that's a possibility, because you're putting yourself in danger, right? You're talking about immediate physical harm. Yes. When that police officer reached for my camera on Spadina Avenue, while I was filming like eight of them around a man who called them for help, who happened to be black, and then they responded to the call that he said he was robbed by demanding that he identify himself, by demanding that he show what was in his pockets. He was treated immediately as the suspect. I began filming. When that officer reached for my camera and I moved backwards, he could have just continued and said I was assaulting him, that I was resisting something. My whole existence is in danger in that moment as a black person particularly. 
I think that's why onboard cameras though and body packs are really important. Like I'm, I'm having great success in the courts with that. That's actually where. So sorry, I don't. I won't. Do I don't that. want. It, I don't want it to dovetail into that section. But I. I, I think, do. I think that's yeah. a great place to go. And I wasn't. I was hesitating to be like, should I even go here right yeah. now? But I think I'm probably in a minority view here. But this is exactly why I don't believe in funding things like body cameras mm -hmm. for the police, mm -hmm. particularly body worn cameras. When the Toronto Police did their pilot project of body-worn cameras, the officers decided when to turn the camera on and off. It's one of the greatest wastes of our money that I've seen in a long time. I think that that's the world that the police are looking for because, again, it all ends up being about their discretion in that case. You're not catching them doing anything that they don't maybe necessarily want you to catch. The body camera didn't turn on properly. The body camera didn't record what it was supposed to do. But we've spent millions and millions of dollars. And again, if I get caught stealing at work, my boss is not going to put a camera in my office. He's going to fire me. Right? And so are we addressing the problem, or are we telling ourselves that we'll, the truth will set us free in every individual instance where the no, truth is No, I think there, there's always going to be issues with, with any type of remedy you are seeking. There will always be an issue. But the truth is, like I said, as a lawyer, boots on the ground, I am seeing a change. 20 years that I've been practicing, I can say that judges are coming around. Their eyes are more open than when I first began practicing. You know, gone are the days where you can tell a judge and look them straight in the eye, this officer is lying, and for the judge to roll their eyes. There are judges who know that they're lying, are calling them out as liars, are excluding huge ev evidence in cases like large amounts of cocaine and firearms because the officer is not being truthful. I mean, in the 2010 case that I did of Raymond Costin, and we'll pull up the, the YouTube video in a second because I say that's where my I kind of got myself into hot water with the police, but I say that's when it started was when I called out an officer for beating my client on his onboard camera. So the YouTube, his onboard camera, I mean, you can see him. He's standing in front of the King Eddie Hotel. The allegation is that he has driven drunk. He's gotten to an accident on the highway. He's still driving his car, sparks <coughs> flying. You know, he's on like two wheels are gone, but he's still driving down the highway. And uh, the allegation is, is that police are trying to get his attention to stop the car. His position is, my windshield is completely cracked. I can't even see anything. I'm just trying to get to a safe place. I'm trying to park my car, probably avoid the police, and get to a bus stop and get on a bus and get home. So he's standing at the bus stop at the King Eddie Hotel, and the officers are hearing, you know, that he's tried to run over a police officer. He's like, I never tried to run over a police officer. And so they're all pumped up. They're charged. You know, they're getting to the scene, and they see him. He's a huge guy. Six foot four, he is black, he's a chef, he takes care of two kids, no criminal record. When he's standing at the sidewalk and you can see them get out of the car, they don't even communicate with him and they whip him to the ground. He gets a goose egg on his head. He goes unconscious, he is not moving. And this officer, I think it's 15 or 16, shots to the back of the head. Okay, he's not even looking at him. He's looking up at some point and he's still hitting. And I'll play it for you. But it's being captured on the onboard camera. All right. Now, when the other officers all come up in their scout cars, every scout car's onboard camera is running. So everybody's capturing what's happening. And he's literally lying motion while they're, you know, feeding him about the head. They take him to his feet eventually. 
he comes to. But before they do that, it's very interesting. One of the officers comes to assist him, and he sees that the onboard camera is running. So he bangs on the hood of the car, and they all look up at the same time, like it was like, whoop. And they all look up, and they realize, oh my, we've been caught. One by one, the cameras go off. It was like one, and then one, and then one. And you can see them walking, one, and then one, and they all go off at the same time. So we come to court, and we're at College Park, and we're arguing about all of this. And thank God I had a great officer in charge who got me all these videos and came to court with his head down every day and said, tell me when this is over. <laughs> and one of the officers testifies, he was flailing, and his, his legs were kicking, and he was just resisting, and we had no choice. And so we were missing one camera, the back angle, to see his legs. <coughs> and so that, that officer, as great as he was, went and got me that video, brought it to me in court and said, have fun. And we put on the video and he's lying dead still while this officer's banging and banging and banging. So the judge said, recall the officer. I want to hear what he has to say. So I recall him and he gets into the stand and I play the video and he looks really closely at the screen and he says, that's not how I remembered it. In my head, that's not how I remembered it. And ultimately, what ended up happening was the officer was charged, and he was acquitted. He was acquitted for that assault. But he couldn't stomach after that litigation for punitive damages or going through a civil suit because he thought he would at least be able to make a difference by having the officer charged criminally and that a resolution will come from that and that in and of itself. And it didn't. It didn't for him. But the charges were withdrawn, obviously yes. they were stayed, or dismissed I should say, and, and he won because of what was captured on the onboard camera. My fear would have been that if I had to call my client to the stand, even with all of his injuries, that perhaps a judge would have said, I believe the police. Six of them came forward, they all said he resisted arrest, but for the onboard camera, I wouldn't have had a compelling argument. I, I think, and I, sorry, no, no. I, and I think that that's a wonderful, wonderful example because for that individual, it really mattered yeah. that you had that evidence, and yeah. it really mattered that there was, I must say, this angel police officer yes. who came forward time and time again and came through for you. Yes. And that's, I would suspect, likely not usually going to be the case. The thin blue wall is a real thing. And so there's a lot of pressure on officers not to do what that individual did for you. I think that my skepticism <clears throat> is about whether or not that very good result for that individual mm -hmm. translates into a notion of overall deterrence towards other officers. That's where my skepticism lies. Yeah. And, and that's kind of the thing that I want us to think more about. So I, I want to talk a little bit about that in terms of, and I want to talk to Leora a little bit about this. I'm happy to chime in just as my experience as a Canadian defense lawyer as well. The history of videotaping police, going back to, I don't know if there's any, I know there's some criminal lawyers here, going back to, if anyone's heard of Moore McFarland. Moore McFarland? Of course. So the idea that if there's a reliable way of recording interrogations in particular, uh, how the courts in Canada have said, or what the courts in Canada have said about having to record that and then the subsequent adoption of 
the use of in-car cameras, and we talk a little bit more about body cameras, but in the criminal context, in individual cases, how have you seen sort of recordings being used? Do you think that they've had a deterrent uh, effect beyond these sort of individual cases? And what is the trend, um, legally speaking, of relying on recordings. I'm happy to sort of discuss this with you. Well, let's go back. Do you want to discuss a little bit about Moore McFarland? Well, Moore McFarland is more about, you know, voluntariness issues and, and how the Crown would have to satisfy a judge that a statement is voluntary. And typically there are indicias of, of reliability. And one of those, of course, is videotaping or recording a statement to ensure its reliability. I'm not sure it necessarily correlates perfectly with onboard cameras and, and, body, and, and taping the police. But you know, I want to say that Raymond Costain, that case that I, I described, wasn't the only success that I've had. And it wasn't just because I had a really diligent and honest police officer on my case. And I use those two words very sparingly. But um, I've, I've had lots of others. I really have. But, but I will say this, that onboard cameras are a great tool when they are used properly. You are right. And police officers do have the discretion to turn them on and off. I mean, on, not I guess not so much unless they don't put their sirens on. But typically when the sirens go on, the camera is supposed to obviously be operable. And it's supposed to stay on. Uh, similarly, when someone's in the back of the cruiser, um, the camera is supposed to go on to record obviously what's going on in the back of the cruiser. I've had lots of success using onboard cameras where judges get an inside view into the interaction between a police officer and a detainee that they wouldn't normally have. I've had success where the officer forgets that his body pack is running. And, you know, we get that footage or that uh, audio and the police are embarrassed when it's played in court and Crown attorneys who say, it's yours. Use it. Use it at, at your will. I mean, Crown attorneys who don't withdraw the charges and instead allow me to play the audio so that a judge can actually have some insight into what's really going on. So yes, it does take honorable Crown attorneys, honorable officers in charge. It does. But what I'm seeing on the ground is there's more of that than there ever was before. There is a change. There, It's slow. Uh, it doesn't happen every day, but when it does, it does make an impact. Um, and and I see it in the courts as a lawyer, and I'm seeing it more and more. So uh, if I could just uh, briefly jump in with this, and I know I'm supposed to be moderating, but I'll give you a little bit of content as well. I've been a lawyer for that long, just six years, but in, my, in the last five years, I've had several cases, and this, I think, doesn't, this doesn't just relate to, I'm not, I'm not just trying to tell war stories, but I do think that it, it does impact generally the attitude of the police and the courts when we have more and more litigation with cases where, you know, there is a Toronto Police Service policy on the use of in-car cameras, and there has been for a long time. I find it shocking. I had a client who was pulled over for driving while black, and I kid you not, that's why he was pulled over. <coughs> the police's reason for pulling him over was that he was driving a rental car in Scarborough. Okay, and they ran his name, and they found that he had entered into a peace bond a week before, and they thought that gave them grounds to pull him out of the car and search the car, search the entire car. Now they did happen to find a little gun in the back seat, you know, but it was a rental car, and he, he was—it was funny. The in-car camera recording on this, he called a lawyer that I used to work with. He called him 
while he was in the car, in the driver's seat, police pulled him over, he called his lawyer there. He put him on speaker, and the cop's microphone picked up the conversation. The lawyer said, why are you pulling my client over? What are you doing? And the cop said, turn the phone off, turn the phone off. And what's interesting is, despite the fact that the in-car camera policy says, don't turn it off, and that it shall be operated throughout this, this interaction, the police officers, after they run his name, they get back into their car, and you can see on the software, they turn off their mics, and they continue to have a conversation. What I was shocked was these police officers lied through their teeth. I didn't turn off the, I didn't turn off the mic. I didn't do this. And I said, you were discussing the grounds that you were going to use to search this car when you turned off. They denied it. Totally impeached. And it's like, they know. They know that there's an in-car camera. They know this is all recorded. But the ultimate result was that the Crown withdrew charges at the end of the preliminary inquiry on a gun charge, which is pretty rare for them to just totally withdraw because they didn't have confidence in, in their I think, and I've had a number of other cases where, you know, in-car cameras are, you know, they're not completely disclosed or the mic is turned off and it, it halts a prosecution. Where I think we're going to start seeing changes is, I, my personal view is, the more recordings we have, at least from a criminalist perspective, the better. The better because it really provides transparency, accountability, and if the police grew up, which they often do, it provides an accurate log to be able to defend your clients in court. I want to, there's, you know, there was in that case in Newmarket, do you remember? The, we're talking about Moore McFarland in Newmarket, uh, was it a couple of years ago, where there was a young man, I can't remember if he was a youth or an adult, but he was suspected, and he, and he, he confessed during this interview to having committed a bunch of robberies, or he made statements that were inculpatory, but the police officer had put him on the wrong side of the camera. He put him so that his face, the interviewee's face, was facing away from the camera because he had been, his face had been roughed up, he had been bloody. And the, and the judge stayed, stayed the charge and said, no, I don't believe this police officer. He didn't follow the policy in terms of how they're supposed to record interviews. And uh, I find that he was beat up and, and stayed the charge. From a criminal lawyer's perspective, I think the more recording, the better. Uh, and then I, I, I'd like to maybe just let Leora and Mickey show us a couple of real-world examples of uh, videotaping the police. And then uh, I would like to move on to the, the body camera issue, just because I know we're at 10.51. I just wanted to follow up on, on you know, I, I know what you were saying about, is this really helping anybody? Versus you saying the more recordings, the better. I think the more recordings, the better. And maybe we'll start to see a gradual shift in that tipping point happening. I agree with you. I don't know that it's happening yet. But I think the important thing is you know, when officers used to train, and, and they still do, so what they end up are trained to do is when they're effectuating arrest, they are saying, stop resisting, stop resisting, stop resisting. Whether the person's resisting or not doesn't matter. That's part of the training. And that used to work before recordings because if there were witnesses and you put the witness on the stand, ma'am, what did you hear the officer saying? Um, they were saying stop resisting. So there's this implication that he must have been resisting because we don't have any other evidence other than what the witness heard. Now there's that disconnect. You've got this video of the guy completely unconscious on the ground. Stop resisting, stop resisting. Well, clearly he ain't resisting. And I think, you know, the more that happens, the more you're going to get a result of, okay, we don't believe the officers, their testimony is not credible. Where before the recording, 
That's all you had. And even forget the officers testifying and lying through their teeth. You had witnesses, and like you asked them, and they honestly said, what did you hear the officers say? Stop resisting. How many times did they say it? Or at least 20 times. I mean, there's a huge difference of the jury hearing that versus the jury watching a videotape where they're saying the same thing, but nobody's resisting. Uh, uh, I see we have a couple of questions. Can we pull up those two uh, videos that we're going to play for? Yeah, um, that's one thing. Doesn't you want to say something really quick? No, I'll wait until afterwards because this is, yeah. Um, yeah, I'll wait. While they're doing the tech stuff, I'll maybe chime in on that subject slightly. Um, I had a chance to speak this week with our Information and Privacy Commissioner for Ontario. And they actually, he, he told me they played quite a role in trying to set up the Toronto yeah. Body Cam, I guess is what we're calling it, project. And the input he was able to give me kind of speaks of it your concerns that because he said they were they were broadly speaking in favor of the project you know for the reason we've been hearing you know more is better in terms of actual data or what did or didn't happen but they were very concerned about how it's used and so one of the things was to have very strict guidelines so I you know, I heard you use the term discretion. They were very concerned about the police not having the discretion about how it's used. That there has to be like a very tight protocol. You're doing certain things, it must be on. And conversely, because they're the privacy people, they want us, you're doing certain other things, you can't film people for that necessarily. I'll say one thing about that discretion issue and then we can play this video. I don't know if anyone saw last year uh, by the way, the way, that, at least in Toronto, the in-car scout car cameras work is as soon as the sirens are turned on, automatically the in-car camera is activated. It's always dormantly, like latently recording, and it'll start saving from 30 seconds prior to when the sirens are turned on. My understanding is that some of the body cams work like that as well. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if anyone knows, but there was a case in Baltimore, and the Baltimore Police Department is, I think, known to have some police corruption issues where a police officer had turned on his body camera as he's entering the curtilage of a home, the sort of surrounding area of a home, and searching for narcotics. And you see this video of him going up and sort of looking through stuff, and then, oh, he pulls out this bag and he discovered some drugs. Great evidence of him discovering drugs at, in this home. What he didn't realize was that when he turned the body cam on, there was 30 seconds saved before. And what did you see in those 30 seconds saved before? Planted, oh, walks back to the yeah. front of the house, yeah. turns the camera on. It's so I totally agree that police discretion in using, when, especially when it's imposed on the police, recording devices, police discretion should be kept at an absolute uh, minimum. Let, let's, let, why don't we have Mickey show or Mickey play this video and um, tell us what's happening. Go away. Go away. Give me this. Just looking at this press What's your name? Philip? Because I want you to go away and not stand here and argue with me. Otherwise, you're about to get locked up. Go away. All right? Leave. Leave. No, leave. Leave. Because it's a current investigation and you're leaving. That's why. All right? You're going away. Because it's, because it's an active scene and you're leaving. All right, no place. Go away, no. So as you can see, this is, it's actually a Saturday, so it's a school. There are people standing around. 
they don't have a big baby cam on their shoulder, so they can stand there, um, but not not the, uh, not, not the cameraman from WNBC in New York. So fortunately, he keeps rolling. And he's now actually asking him, should I call the PIO, the Public Information Officer? He misunderstands, should I call the PIO? He's like, thank you, well, I'll call your superior. It's like, now this is a sergeant, supervisory officer. So, so the cameraman, he's now about a block and a half away, and he's filming the streets open. There's no perimeter up. Kids are walking down the street. Everybody can be there but the one guy with the camera. He's now actually talking to the PIO, oh, and you'll hear his conversation. So he was charged with obstruction of governmental administration. Go away, as in disappear off the face of the earth, is not a reasonable time, place, and manner restriction. He had the charges dismissed pretty quickly and oh, brought the 1983 action. This cost the taxpayers of Suffolk County $200,000 to settle this. My good friend Sergeant Milton was there. I mean, this is the problem. He's a supervisory officer and should have known better. But when you're a journalist, so here's a car stop. It could have been a nothing with nothing, which it was car stop. It could have been the mayor driving drunk. You don't know that. And if you don't film it, um, you know, if you film it and find out later it's nothing, you don't use it. But if you don't film it, you don't have it. And obviously being out in the public where you had a perfectly reasonable right to be there, should, I mean, the sergeant was very contrite in, in his deposition, which I attended. But he really thought that that's what he could do. He could tell them, well, there's an investigation, so you can't record. The sad thing is, part of the settlement, besides the $200,000, was the police had to go through training, and they had to do this, and they had to do that. And literally, two years later, there's another case, $50,000 more, where they stopped the citizen from recording. So, as you said, you know, it's not coming out of their pocket. Sergeant Milton lost, I think, three vacation days. <laughs> anyway, you want to put uh, your, your you, you guys can YouTube Raymond Costain. It's chef, it's the chef Raymond Costain. YouTube it at your your leisure, and you'll see that's the one where he's standing in front of the King Edward, Edward Hotel. It's it's on on YouTube, and they can watch that on their own. I, I know we're short for, for time. So I'll let Desmond um, have last word, and then we can open up the floor to more questions. What I reflect on is what success looks like and for whom, right? I've been watching the case of Daniel Monsignor in Ottawa, the police officer mm -hmm. who was charged with manslaughter uh, in the killing of Abdelrahman Abdi, a 37-year-old black man whose family and community said he lived with mental health issues, mm -hmm. who was chased by the police from a cafe some 300 meters from his home. The police caught up to him in front of his home and then according to all the evidence, the police, the first police was beating him with the baton, uh, trying to subdue him. A second police officer arrives on the scene. He's wearing a pair of reinforced carbon gloves. And according to witnesses, he runs up to the scene and begins violently swinging at Abdelman, ultimately, uh, delivering two blows to his head, after which Abdelrahman stops moving, and no one ever sees him move again. There's a dispute as to whether or not 
he died right there on the scene. He was recorded as having no vital signs when the paramedics came about 15 or 20 minutes after this began. And the next day after he was officially pronounced dead, his family told the public that the hospital said he had been dead 45 minutes before he came into the hospital. We can't get our brother back no matter what a camera shows. This is what's so hard for me. Who wins if Daniel Mancion is convicted of manslaughter? Who actually wins? Because the family has to go through this. A community of black people who see are particularly our men who are living with mental health issues. We have to suffer through these cases. Um, I don't see these kinds of attacks on our communities abated. That's not what I hear, that's not my experience in community today. And um, if there is a guilty finding with Monsion, our brother paid with that for his life. I can't live in a world where black people have to die in order for white society to believe us. It's too costly. That's my challenge here, is that I'm like, how do I stop the violence? Not how do I catch the person after they've already taken the life of somebody in our community? How do I stop that from happening? And if I could have the best defense lawyers in these situations where we get beat up and we ultimately get charged with a crime, where we're injured, where our lives are put at risk, if I could have all the video evidence in the world, I would take it, don't get me wrong, right? Obviously. But I'm like, outside of that, the notion that over some period of time, police will, as a result of negative complicity, negative decisions, become less likely to engage in that behavior. That's the part where I am stuck. As I said, it's just too much in their interest not to do so, given the role that we've given them, given them all the tools and the weapons that we have given them. And ultimately, if we want people to stop dying, I am not of the belief that enough of these decisions are going to get us there. The police couldn't help themselves from killing this man. They thought that they needed to subdue him, particularly after he decided to run away. Running away, being feeling so scared and defenseless that you run is a crime to the people who are gonna end up ultimately in that courtroom. You're not even allowed to save your own life. And that's really my ongoing concern. I want to live in a world where if somebody who says that they're enforcing the law wants to confront a member of the public and wants to do so violently, that there's a little bit of a fair fight. I can't even lie about that. If I was living in the United States, I would be so tempted to carry a weapon because a police officer can come into my home while I'm watching a football game and murder me. And then we have to have an argument that will take years about whether or not it was my home, about whether or not I was threatening the police officer in my home, but that person's gone. So on a broader level, outside of the courtroom, which is what I was alluding to in the beginning, do we believe the truth will ultimately convince people who have that disproportionate amount of power to stop engaging in acts of violence, particularly because that violence is motivated by racism? Absolutely it will not. Not over the long term. We could say in 25 years from now it's getting better, but I won't know what that means if black people are still dying at the hands of the police. That is why 
And again, this is why I'm, I'm in my activism, this is why this is what I think about. This is exactly why disarmament, taking away the taser from the frontline officer, taking away the handgun from the frontline officer. By the way, when a police officer is found to turn off their camera, so maybe the charge against the person that they wronged is withdrawn. But what's the consequence for them? They will find any reason to charge me with obstruction of justice or whatever for trying to film them. But what do they get when it's found that they lied, when it's found that they turned off the camera? What's their consequence? If we want to talk about deterrent, police officers getting fired for turning off the body cam. Police officers getting fired for lying about the evidence. That's what I'm talking about. I agree with you. That's really the fight that I'm very interested in, is how do we, in the public, say, show us that accountability by making examples out of some of these people. So that was a discussion of videotaping police misconduct. Thank you for sharing this time with us. If you're interested in talking about police issues more generally, we have a Stop Racial Profiling Committee in the Law Union. You can join by emailing lawunionofontario at gmail.com. You can also email us here at the Jured Podcast, J-U-R-E-D Foundation at gmail.com, J-U-R-E-D Foundation.wordpress.com to see our website. You can subscribe to us at anywhere you find podcasts. We would love that. Give us a rating, thumbs up, comments, anything of that nature. We're so happy that you came. We hope you come back and have collectively an excellent day.